Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. In this episode, we're going to be turning to the rich tradition of Muslim travel writing to understand how Muslims not only learned about other cultures, but learned about other cultures through their cooperation and in many ways their entanglement in other cultural and intellectual worlds. And we'll be looking not merely at the Arabic tradition of Muslim travel writings, but at what we'll be calling not only the Indo-Persian, but also the Anglo-Persian tradition of travel writings. When we think of Muslim travellers, if we do at all, we perhaps often think of Ibn Battuta, the 14th century Moroccan traveller and explorer who spent 30 years on the road. He's often called the Muslim Marco Polo, but in fact he travelled far further than Polo, going not only through Central Asia and China, but also through much of Africa and indeed through the Indian Ocean world into India and to the regions we'll be looking at today. We'll be exploring, though, not so much Arabic travel writings, but travel writings in the other great classical language of the Islamic world, Persian. And we'll be moving not so much into Persian's historical homeland, the regions of what are now Iran and Afghanistan, but into the regions of India, where Persian flourished as a major administrative, bureaucratic, political, but also literary language between the 13th and the 19th century. We'll be looking in particular at the eastern regions of historical India, what's now the Indian state of Bengal and the independent nation of Bangladesh. And we'll be looking at how in that region from the emergence of the Muslim rule Bengal Sultanate in the 1350s, right through the conquest of the Mughal Empire and then the rise of the East India Company in the middle of the 18th century, Persian continued to be a language of both diplomacy and intellectual exchange. We'll be looking then in particular at the way in which Persian was used by Indian as well as by British explorers and intellectuals to write about and to understand the other societies that lay at the fringe of the more familiar worlds of India and Bengal. The regions then that we now think of as Myanmar but were historically known as Burma. This was then the region of interactions between Muslims and Buddhists. Taking us today through this entangled world of Indians, Britons and Burmese, of Christians, Muslims and Buddhists, is Arash Khazani. Arash Khazani is Professor of History at Pomona College and is the author of a recent book on these travel writings called The City and the Wilderness, Indo-Persian Encounters in Southeast Asia, which is published in 2020 by the University of California Press. Hello, Arash. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hi, Niall. Well, today we're going to be talking about the broad and rich heritage of Muslim travel writings. From early in Islamic history, the different genres of travel writing emerged, originally in Arabic, but then subsequently in the other great language of the Islamic world, Persian. 
the Persian language that was used at its peak, all the way from the Balkans to the Bay of Bengal, where you'll be taking us today. And as Persian uh, spread across from its original homeland in what's now Iran and Afghanistan and moves into India in the medieval period with the founding of the, the first uh, Turkish-led but, but linguistically Persian uh, sultanates of medieval India, Persian gets introduced into India and becomes actually this very, very major Indian, geographically Indian literature that we call Indo-Persian. So as we start to look at a particular branch then of this really huge and often really in many ways forgotten corpus of Indo-Persian literature, um, what do we mean when we speak of Indo-Persian travel writing? I think one of the things that we could we could think about in our effort to define what we mean by Indo-Persian is that it's a, it's a context. Um, and this is a context that's, that's uh, in some ways quite different from what's, what's often been referred to as the Persian. The, the Indo-Persian world refers um, really to this, to this space that emerged, uh, in, in, my, in my view, during the early modern period and, and connected places such as Timurid Central Asia, Safavid Iran, Mughal, Mughal India. These were the places in some ways uh, that, that it was at its core. Now, um, my, my uh, uh, approach to these travel writings utilized the term Indo-Persian because the, the question of Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia as a subject of travel writing, as a zone of, of, of travel knowledge, is, is an area that comes specifically through contact with India. And when we say Southeast Asia, we mean like the country, countries now, such as Myanmar, or what used to be called Burma, Thailand, and even further afield to what's now Malaysia and Indonesia. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a wide, uh, wide span of territory here. And, and of course, it's almost in some ways a misnomer to even call it Southeast Asia in this time period. In many ways, Burma uh, is, is referred to in, in, in some of these, of, of these accounts as India beyond the Ganges, right? So yes. That's what we're referring to, referring to the other side of the Bay of Bengal, uh, beginning with the Southeast Asian mainland, but also the, the uh, Malay and Indian archipelago further east. Uh, but our zone will, that, I, that I'm dealing with today is essentially the, the, the coastline uh, of the Bay of Bengal, the Bay of Bengal littoral. That's, that's referred to in our, in our contemporary geographical dispensations as Southeast Asia. So, um, I felt that these are an Indo-Persian form of travel writing in the sense that um, they, they are, while they're written in Persian, uh, are being produced in India with a wide swath of their readership uh, in India. And also the fact that, that it's, it's the contact with Southeast Asia is, is very definitely filtered through uh, the, the presence of South Asia um, and the South, South Asian context. On another level, I think Indo-Persian refers to a, a certain world that I've tried to, to, to speak about, a, a world that is both land-based, you know, spreading across from, from Central Asia into Iran uh, and South Asia, but also has this sort of oceanic uh, dimension, this maritime side, uh, of which Southeast Asia forms the very fringes, the, 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 the ends of. Uh, so Southeast Asia is, is, is on the frontiers of, these Indo, of this Indo-Persian 
Persian world. And so in many ways, these travel accounts that, that we can label and define as, as, as Indo-Persian, uh, again, are, we can call them that because of the context through which they're produced, they're written and consumed, and also because of the, the proximity of India in, in, um, in, in sort of the geographical conception of, of these worlds. Wonderful. So you've taken us, in a sense, from, from Central Asia and Iran, the linguistic homelands of the, of the Persian language, right now to, ben, to Bengal and indeed beyond. And it's really, it's, it's in the period of the, the Bengal Sultanate, isn't it? One of these Muslim-ruled sultanates in India from, and the Bengal Sultanates from 1352 to 1576. And that, in, in a sense, introduces, and introduces the Persian language as a bureaucratic as well as a literary language to that region. And then subsequently with the conquest of the, the Mughal Empire, Empire of, of Bengal in what's now the Indian state of Bengal and on the modern map Bangladesh, we have Persians taking these deeper roots and becoming a language of, of, of administrative and political, but also intellectual exploration, which is where these uh, travelogues that you, you've, you've worked on, these forgotten travelogues and sitting in libraries around the world that you've, you've brought to light, were written really to explore what, what lay beyond the, 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 the Bengal Sultanate, the Mughal Empire, on these edges of these other kingdoms that you'll no doubt be talking to, talking about in, in what is now Myanmar, historically Burma. But let's move on to these travel writings in particular then, and perhaps you could tell us how this tradition of Indo-Persian travel writing took shape and, and what were its key characteristics? Yeah, um... And, and I have to just, before doing that, just reiterate uh, your point there that it is absolutely this diplomatic imperial parlance, this, this world of, of the Mughal Imperium, and before that, the Sultanate of Bengal, which was directly related to the formation of uh, the Mrau Kingdom uh, in the 15th century. That, that you have the immersion of, 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 of these kingdoms into the, into the Indo-Persian world. Absolutely, this is a this is a, a, a republic of letters, a world of letters, and and di diplomatics, and uh, you increasingly see these places sort of woven into this sort of Indo-Persian Mughal imperium. Uh, places like Pigu, for instance, the capital of the Mon Hanthawadi kingdom, right, and then Rau most particularly, most most uh, most deeply in Arakan, and of course following the conquest of these kingdoms by the Kombang dynasty in the mid 18th century, then you begin to see the Kombang dynasty in the heart of the Irrawaddy River Delta pulled into this, this, this world. But to kind of get back, yes. And this Kombang dynasty, that, that's, although its population is multi-religious, the Kombang rulers are Buddhist, aren't they? And the rulers of these other kingdoms are, are Muslim. So these are ethnically and religiously diverse kingdoms, but nonetheless their leaderships are Muslim and Buddhist respectively. And in a sense, that's what we look, we'll be looking at, some of these interactions. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Buddhist kingdoms 
that are that are regardless of 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 the official religion entwined within what we would call Persian Indo-Persian networks. But I believe your question was how this this tradition of of Indo-Persian travel writing uh, began. Um, and and uh, I mean, of course, it has old roots. I mean, so Indo-Persian travel writing in terms of Southeast Asia, right? If we were to consider that, then certainly some of the the uh, the earliest examples that we could note are are tales such as the Ajayib al-Makhlugat, Bakarayib uh, al-Majudat of Zakaria Ghazvini, uh, the medieval, the 13th century text on the marvels, uh, which describe these sort of faraway uh, mystical islands that were reached after long journeys into uh, the Indian Ocean, right? I mean, and places known for their distinct uh, geographies and landscapes and, and in particular customs that were sometimes quite jarring uh, to, to these travelers. Uh, a, a classic example is sort of the, the mysterious Isle of Wakwak, which uh, has, uh, you know, a, a special tree of which humans grow and, and makes the sound wakwak and, and, and is, could be somewhere out uh, beyond Java, perhaps, and is ruled by, uh, 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 by women, right? So ways in which sort of the, the landscape, the different landscapes and the different customs of, of Southeast Asia are brought into, uh, into the, the, the world of these, these Indo-Persian travel accounts. Of course, Zakaria Zach, uh, Ghazvini's text was an Arabic text. I mean, he was of Arab descent, even though he was from Ghazvin. But of course, this is a text that's then reproduced and, and, um, and, uh, and translated into Persian, and which also in itself draws upon certain older mariner's tales. Uh, for instance, uh, the, the tales of Abu Zayd al-Hassan al-Sarafi from Saraf in the, in the Persian Gulf and his Akhbar al-Sin wal-Hind, which were these wondrous tales, which at some point made up the tales that were collected into the stories of Sinbad the sailor, uh, and, and these journeys into the islands and littorals of Southeast Asia. But really, it's in the early modern period that I see this tradition of Indo-Persian travel writing flourishing. And, 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 um, and, it's, and it's what happens here is this older, uh, kind of mystical and, and hazy view of a wondrous Southeast Asian littoral, which was largely based on the lack of knowledge that existed about these places um, and, and, the, and the folkloric ways through which they were understood is blended with a certain kind of empiricism. And we begin to see this in the early modern period. A, a really great example is Kemal ad-Din Abdul Razak Samarkandi's uh, text in 1442, Matla Sadein, which in which he's sent as an emissary from the Timurid court of Shah Rukh in 1442 to the Malabar coast, and then ends up describing the kingdom of Vijayanagara. So he's right? coming all the way down from what's now Western Afghanistan, all the way to Southern India. Absolutely. Yeah, to describe the Southern Indian Hindu kingdom. So you, it, it is, it, it, 
to, to, to answer your question of when it begins to take shape, right? It has these earlier roots in this Ajayab genre. Of course, we can even look further than that. Much of these texts have geographical roots, like the Arabic genre uh, and the Persian genre of geographia and uh, the Kitab Masalek or Mamalek, right? Um, that were that were these geographical modes of defining cities and the distances in between them. Not to mention, um, if we were to take on the full literary scope of, of works that are related, the whole mirrors for princes literature, which was conceived as you know often fictionalized tales about faraway kingdoms and their sovereigns and how they ruled as sort of examples to be followed or not followed, right? So it's all these different elements that go into the making of, of, of what we would call Indo-Persian travel writing in this early modern period. Now, my uh, forthcoming book is still, well, I like to think grounded in the early modern times. It, it's roughly set in the uh, last two decades of the 18th century, maybe goes through like the first few years of the 19th century, maybe 1805. Uh, but I um, explore a, a period um, in which, in which uh, sort of the tail end of the early modern period and the, and the sort of the, this, this age of Indo-Persian travel writing at a time when it was coming under new influences and in particular through its contact with the East India Company and the Asiatic Society of Bengal, the ways in which Persian, you know, it's often, we often hear about the fact this is a moment that this was the 18th century was disastrous for Persian and Iran and, and, and things of that nature, right? It's a, it's a period of dy dynastic turbulence and the decaying of the Mughal Empire. And yet here it is that in this moment, you have the richest and most graphic Indo-Persian Indo or Persian writings about Southeast Asia. <laughs> This is, a, 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 as you said, this, the mid-18th century is a period of the, the collapse of the older um, early modern empires, and particularly the Muslim-ruled empires like the Mughals, and the rise in particular of this new disruptor, this big disruptive power, which is the, the British East India Company. Absolutely. Now, in, seven, in 1757, the Battle of Plassey in Bengal, that's usually seen as the moment when the East India Company stops being a company and starts being a political power. And part of what happens as a consequence of that is the East India Company needs to, needs to learn to rule, to govern, and indeed to tax Bengal and the other regions that will conquer. And to do that, it needs to draw on these Persian-speaking bureaucrats who for centuries have worked for the Mughal Empire. And as a result then, we have the, the founding, for, for example, of the Fort William College in 1800 in Calcutta in Bengal, where British administrators and British bureaucrats at the East India Company will be studying Persian with the teachers or secretaries they call munches. And there's also the founding of the Asiatic Society of Bengal in Calcutta in 1784, where lots of, of, of British scholars associated with the company start learning Persian together with their Indian teachers, collecting manuscripts and gaining an interest then in, in all things Persian and Persianate. <laughs> And indeed, it's an, until 1837, the East India Company will continue to 
to govern its expanding domains by means of, of Persia. And, and this is then giving rise then to a, a shift that, that, that you'll be exploring for us then between from what we've defined as Indo-Persian to what we might call Anglo-Persian then, which is to say Persian being written by or, or written for or read by in collaboration with, with Indians writing in Persian together with these British scholars of the Asiatic Society in the Fort William College. Yeah, I think that's absolutely an interesting way to, to see the, the, the political context of this time, I think, in the late 18th century, that there, I mean, I think it's a topsy-turvy world, and if we put ourselves back there, maybe now we, in hindsight we can see what happened, but, but then I think it was, a, it was a constellation of empires, right? Um, I mean, you had you had the Mughal the Mughal Empire, which still, you know, despite its decay, had a certain level of prestige. Uh, but you also had these other uh, princely states and Nawab states that were sort of um, part of this world and vying and contending for power. I mean, and here I mentioned the Nizam of Hyderabad, and and in particular uh, Tipu Sultan. Of, of Mysore, all of which were kind of taking on, you know, uh, a, different, a different approach in terms of their relations to the company, but also kind of carrying on a kind of a certain Mughal Indo-Persian repertoire, right? And, and I think we can see the Kombang dynasty even as part of this world of kingdoms. And, and, and I think the East India Company does a really interesting uh, job of, 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 of immersing itself in this world and operating in some level with the lack of a better word is almost a kind of a sultanate yeah. in these ways and employing these methods. I mean, um, and I mean, I know we're not supposed to talk historiography, but the, the work of the late Chris Bailey's had a hu huge influence uh, on, on my work. Um, and, and I think, you know, in my own, in my own field where I was trained, Iranian and Afghan history, right? You know, uh, this, this moment of empire, or, or, or which is in many ways, sadly, so reserved only for British or Russian or European power, is, is seen as something that is, you know, very black and white and is resisted. You know, when you talk about Persian and its interaction with empire, we go to Iranian historiography. It's all about, you know, the resistance to you know, the British presence and the preservation of national sovereignty. And yet, actually, what we see here that there's, while there may be fair to say for, for certain ways as part of the story, right, there's a whole nother story that's about the, the blurring of these lines and, and, and traditions coming together to create something quite new through Persian. <laughs> And, and that's, that's the world that my travelers in this book come from. They're, they're um, imbued in this, in this world of, of colonial Persian or Anglo-Persian that, 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 that you say. And so I look at, you know, a set of six travelers. Um, the book is a, is a micro-history, is a set of micro-histories, uh, each based on sort of a, a life travel story. And, and so there's six of them. And actually, in the course of that, you probably get about two or three more characters thrown into the mix. Um, but, uh, you know, so the first group of travelers that I explore are coming out of this wonders matrix topoi that, you know, I think I, I, I sort of see them as writing about 
about Indian Ocean wonders and Ajaib still, right? And 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 these three three authors um, uh, uh, that 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 are. I, I categorize under this grouping are still coming under the influence of, of, of their travel accounts would not be written without knowledge through, of the Asiatic Society and East India Company and travels that they actually took on company ships with Orientalists and, and often the, their networks inter, intersect their friends intersect. And so um, these are authors that, that I see that, that while they're writing in sort of, in some ways, an older, more ornate Safarnameh, the Persian title for the travel log tradition, they're heavily influenced um, by um, sort of the new changes that, that, that they see and, and, and the influence of uh, the company and the Asiatic society. And so the first chapter begins, of course, with Mirza Tissam ad-Din, the author of the Shagarf Name, uh, and and of course the, the Book of uh, Wonders, isn't it? The Book of Wonders of the homeland, the book, which is the Book of Wonders. Yes, that is uh, that is from uh, the 1760s. The, the sort of the prototype of these texts, and and often these texts have been read for their. Uh, uh, writing about Velayat, right? About 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 their trip to England, right? I mean, he was sent on a on a mission to London. This is uh, why this text is often often remembered. But of course, the beginning of that text, which wasn't included much of it in in the actually translated account that you can find in in, in archives, uh, and I looked at the, the 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 manuscript in the British Library, has a whole. Uh, beautiful and intricate beginning uh, segments that uh, detail uh, Mirza Atisam dins travels in Southeast Asia. Um, and, and also uh, another character I wrote about is Mirza Abu Talib Khan, um, whose Masira Talabi was uh, translated as the Travels of Mirza Abu Talib by Charles Stewart. And, and um, another writer that we can include uh, within this, this, uh, these three are, or the, these, the three accounts that are kind of rooted very strongly in this wonders way of seeing the Indian Ocean is uh, the author of Tofat al Alam, Mir Abdul Latif Khan Shushtari, who um, uh, wrote the 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 book of the what's it, the gift of the world or rarity of the world. Um, a rather lofty title he gave to his travel account, and I think actually it's deserving. I think it's, in my opinion, uh, the most eloquent travel account um, uh, written in, in, in the Qajar period of Iran. Uh, I, I, would, I would list it right up there, and there's no translation of it, sadly. <laughs> So we're seeing here that even as as late as you've taken us up there through the 18th century up until the the early 90, the early 1800s, in fact, with with Mirza Abu Talib, uh, and and we're getting a sense here that Persian is still actually this language of international diplomatics, but also in which the the these secretaries and secretaries come diplomats in a sense, the figures and, and indeed language teachers as well uh, in the case of, uh, of Abu Talib are really actually using Persian as a language which is still a lingua franca that you can actually use among certain groups, at least in London, whether we translate it because of the East India Company, as well as in Calcutta, as well as in Hyderabad, uh, where Shustari re relocates to, as well as across the Bay of Bengal then into the place that, that uh, is perhaps 
the most unusual and I guess the most mysterious and the most wondrous in many ways of the places that have been evoked in the the, uh, the Indo-Persian travelogue tradition then of, 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 of Murau. So perhaps you could take us then in those directions eastwards then into these encounters of Indo-Persian indeed Anglo-Persian travelogues with the uh, the partly at least partly Buddhist societies of of, uh, of what was then called in the text Burma and what we now know of as Myanmar. So Niall as you know usually when I wrap when you wrap up our questions it reminds me of something else that I have to kind of reaffirm related to the last question which is that yeah you're 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 quite right and I'd like to just say that that you know these these previous writers that I that I mentioned, right? These late eighteenth century Safarname wonders writers, right? Are 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 then um, uh, uh, complemented uh, around the same time that they're writing, and and they are have access to to the company to, to the libraries of the Asiatic Society and to the scholars of the Asiatic Society. What also is going on around this time are those who are, as you say, munshis, scribes, uh, diplomats, botanists, who are specifically actually hired by the East India Company and dispatched to the Kombang dynasty of Burma uh, to, to essentially chart it, to, 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 to write write about it and to kind of uh, inscribe it uh, for, for, the, for the company to know. And here uh, you have such travelers as, as Michael Symes, an Irish traveler, why, of course, um, he, he writes the, the, the embassy to the kingdom of Ava, but in very interesting ways. Of course, he's, he's Irish, but he's fluent in Persian, which is why he's selected as the envoy in addition to his, 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 his I think friendly demeanor. He was also quite uh, uh, well versed and could conduct diplomacy uh, through Persian letters. And interestingly enough, he writes his British travel account in the vein of this sort of wonders tale, heading off into this this unknown kingdom with a with this this uh, uh, ethical or 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 supreme sovereign right and when he brings it back it's really of no use and many people in the company criticize him hear him cox in particular whom cox's bazaars is because it was too romantic it was too ornate it was it was written in this older style so he's actually you know an envoy dispatched to uh, forge diplomatic and commercial relations with the kombong dynasty and the first company embassy to burma and he's seeing it through this older way, uh, this older way of, of Persian travel, travel writing. And his botanist who he took with him, Singhi Bey, uh, who was sent specifically uh, to, to uh, uh, chart the, the flora and the fauna of, of the, the Burmese kingdom. And similarly, later after that, Shah Azizullah Bukhari Kalandar, the final character I write about, who is, who is sent because of his knowledge of Persian and, and Arakanese to sort of decipher uh, Buddhist codes of law.
So I've been I've introduced the term Anglo-Persian, right? which of course I've taken from from your own work. But but of course, since science is Irish, maybe I should have been talking about a Hiberno-Persian tradition. But uh, be that as it may, it's called coin another neologism. But the Scottish were were played a big role, actually. So how in these Anglo-Persian, Hiberno-Persian, Indo-Persian texts written about uh, Burma or Myanmar, how is the actual environment, the place itself, depicted? Uh, well, I. The forest is a key uh, part of um, all of these texts. I mean, so many of them begin with this this forest environment, the the abohava, right? The 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 water and air. Uh, this this idea of defining uh, the climates and the land of these places, these climes that you're traveling to, is 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 certainly a feature. And uh, one might even say the forest. The forest landscape, right, and and also these journeys, um, you know, before you actually get to these kingdoms, and part of their whole aura is the oceanic, the seascapes that you have to travel on the way to getting there, right. So the 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 nature is is deeply embedded, right, in the way they they see this land, and and of course its its flora is is also home to um, certain animals such as pachyderms, elephants, and rhinos that are associated in, in a variety of ways. But the forest, it turns up as so many things, as, a, as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, the, as the land of these, uh, first of all, as the land of the sovereign, right, who theoretically has a sort of a, a stewardship over it. It's... land of, of Buddhism, the forest, right? I mean, that where uh, Siddhartha found uh, nirvana under the canopy of trees. Um, so it, in, in, in so many ways, right, it, it, it turns up as, as the, the sort of the setting and, and the, the, the key through which these places are unlocked, right? And, and I think another way in which I think it's, it's, it's all embedded with this, this idea of the forest. And as I just alluded to, another concept that I think runs really deep in these works is the idea of kingship. And, and I alluded to this is that, you know, I don't think that we can look, um, one thing I kind of had to wean myself in from reading these travel accounts is to not look at them through concepts such as discovery or exploration necessarily, um, but to try to find out what their own logic might have been. And it's so, um, and of course my book is called City in the Wilderness and partially because there is this theme in them of kind of traveling through cultivated and uncultivated places to reach the abode of an ideal king and to describe his sovereignty and kingdom. That is in so many ways the kind of the, the category through which they're, they're told. And, and so let me just add another Thing. And another side of this story is then, then what is the religion of, of this kingdom? How does this kingdom sort of relate and connect to uh, Islam, right? And, and this, is a, this is a theme that we can, we can see all of these texts trying to work out. And this is an old, 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 um, uh, I think Topoi. If you go back, for instance, to reading the Hamza Nameh and look at the way King Landor 
of Ceylon is described, right? I mean, in 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 that in that way, you know, you have him described through his through notions of sovereignty. He's kind of an, an old kind of Persianate king in the, in the style of the Shahnameh. And what is his religion, right? It's he's, he's a fire worshiper. He's a kind of a fire worshiper. And so um, it's, it's, of course, we know that <laughs> Ceylon was not Zoroastrian, but, but it was a way, this kind of, this religion becomes a way in, through which to sort of understand, understand these places. <laughs> I see these themes as being particularly intertwined um, and, and all sort of at the heart of, of Indo-Persian perceptions of, of Southeast Asian kingdoms and, 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 and settings. So what, what we're hearing then is in fact, these, these, these journeys in which British, Irish, Indian Muslim, and indeed Indian Hindu scholars are traveling together, they're discussing and writing text together or sharing ideas through the medium of Persian. Even in English, actually, we have some of the, the environmental terms, in a sense, that you've been describing, haven't they? The forest jungle from the Persian jungal, isn't it? The word for forest. Or the English word monsoon from the Arabic Persian term mosin, literally a season, but the sea seasons. But what's also, I think, really exciting about this particular text and region you've been looking at is for both Europeans and indeed for, for Muslims, and indeed Hindus, in the 18th century, the religion that we now call Buddhism is, is pretty much an unknown. That's why, as you said, the, the kings of, of Ceylon, uh, Sri Lanka, are depicted as, as Zoroastrian, a known religion. Because mm -hmm. the, 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 the fact that Buddhism had emerged in India with a historical figure, Siddhartha Gautama the Buddha, had been forgotten and lost in the course of 2000 years. So there's in a sense here a shared if I might use that word, rediscovery of, of, of who the Buddha was and what this Buddhist religion entailed. And perhaps with different concepts that were used rather than the word we now use by default, Buddhism. Mm. So perhaps you can tell us more about how these texts actually kind of conceived the religion and the peoples that now we would call Buddhists. Yes, and here, let me pick up on this last point um, about religion as a, as a driving kind of theme in Indo-Persian travel writing, which is that so much of the writing about, about, again, just like describing lands and kings and sovereigns, another way was, was how were these lands converted? And often these stories, they're stories of sheikhs, of saints that ended up in these places, right? But Sufis, effectively. Sufis that, that ended up in these places and, and then cultivated the souls of, 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 of the people into becoming believers. Often they're connected with also being taught to farm, for instance. Uh, uh, Mirza Atisam ad-Din recounts the story of a Sheikh Sayyid Pak who converted all of Burma to Islam. 
um, you know, these sorts of stories. And then he later re repeats another story about, about a similar thing happening in the Malay archipelago. Of course, we've heard these tales before in the past, but this becomes a theme of how these lands were converted. And of course, sometimes they're just hopeless, right? You're not going to convert them, right? And they're going to, you know, sort of remain uh, idolaters, you know? That, but, but for the most part, the theme is that uh, that's what happens. Um, because if I can just sort of pick up on that term idolater, I mean, what, the, the reason you're using that term is because sort of by a, a historical, an irony of historical linguistics, the word in, in Persian for an idol is a but, which comes from the old Sanskrit word bud, the name for the, the statues of Buddha. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, there's a, the, the, this is what, what they're, but parasti, but parastesh. These things are eventually then turn up into the more, more, uh, empirical accounts. So yeah, so while we have this, this trope of travel writing that talks about sort of these mystical sheikhs and saints going out and converting Southeast Asia, and by the way, there's, there's a level of truth to that, you know? I mean, um, uh, I believe both of us have been to the shrine of Abid Shah Husseini, in, in the late 18th century shrine uh, in, in uh, Amarapura, who was a saint from Aurangabad with connections to the, to the Nizam, who left it all behind and somehow ended up in Burma and became sort of a, a Sufi, uh, a, it was a Qadiri and an Akshbandi who became the Sheikh al-Islam. So that after performing miracles in the court of the king, as the inscription in his tomb relates, right? So the, there's, there, is, there is some things that we can actually hook onto as well as all the Badr Maghams, these, these, these uh, shrines built to the Sufi Saint Pir Badr of Chittagong all up and down the coast of Burma. Um, but what happens in, in the late 18th century is then this, this style of, of writing through these mystic sheikhs converting and going out to the frontiers of Islam, um, there is actually like a, a concerted uh, effort on the part of the Asiatic society to recover uh, codes of law Sanskritic codes of law and Pali codes of law through Persian languages that the company is not very as, as familiar and adept in. And this is where you have munshis being employed to uh, um, translate uh, and, and to help in the codification of, of the laws of uh, Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists. A classic example of, of this process, of course, is Nathaniel Halhead's A Code of Gentoo Laws, uh, which, which was published in, in 1776. So this, this process of uh, recovering um, the world of Sanskrit and Pali through Persian is, is in some ways related to um, ideas by scholars like William Jones and others of the, of the interconnection and syncretism between different linguistic and religious groups. And, and of course, also part of this process by which the different kind of religious traditions uh, in South and Southeast Asia here are becoming codified. And it's in this context that you have uh, um, an East India Company, uh, um, Asiatic Society Orientalist, John Murray McGregor, um, commissions a number of munshis to, um, to help to recover the codes of law from Arakan, the Pali, Pali texts that include 
a variety of, 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 of types of work from uh, agricultural manuals to jatakas to Buddhist cosmographies uh, to kind of ethnographic texts that, that, that his munshis write identifying the kingdom of Mrawu as a way to, and of course this is a time when um, Britain has conquered uh, Bengal um, and, and the Kombong dynasty has conquered Arakan, right? And you have uh, all these refugees and, and migrants, borders, crossing the border back and forth between Bengal and Arakan. So there's a need for this kind of information. This and is what, 1785, isn't it? The conquest of... Seven, se yes, 1784 is the conquest of, of Arakan by the Kombong dynasty. And it's in this moment that you have um, these Muslim Persian munshis, in this case, um, the, the character I follow, his name is Shah Azizullah Bukhari Kalandar. So we can sort of, from based on his name, assume that he had at least some roots to the Central Asian oasis of Bukhara, that he was at least in some ways, because of the term Kalandar, um, uh, interested in the Sufi dispensation of Islam. And he is, um, uh, through conversations with Burmese monks, translates uh, a, a body of, of Pali text into Persian. Um, and what's interesting about this, and again, we've been talking about the, the, the role of Sufism and sort of the conversion uh, of Southeast Asia and these classical trope of the Safar Nomes. Here what you have is, 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 a, is a much more thorough engagement with the world of Buddhism in an attempt to figure it out, but one which is nonetheless um, translated into, into Islamic notions and actually the Islamic lexicon um, through which uh, the Buddha emerges as a kind of a, a wandering mendicant and dervish seeking truth in the forest. So how, as we start to re reflect back upon this big body of knowledge and particularly with regard to the Indian Ocean world, how do these Indo-Persian, Anglo-Persian travelogues tell us about the ways in which Muslims in the past have understood and interacted with other cultures and religions? I think, sadly, they, they capture a world that, that's in some ways been lost by you know, hardened identities and, and lines being drawn. Uh, I mean, without a doubt, what you see is a, is a very syncretic world in which um, you know islam and buddhism could interact and find common ground despite their differences and also come together in certain ways and and this is a world that as as we see it in in the late 18th century is being brought together it's it's already beginning to fall apart because these old older connections right um become more unwelcome in the sort of the anti-colonial uh, and, and nationalist periods of Burmese, Indian, Iranian history. And, and, and these, much of what, 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 we, what we can recover about this time, it, it lay in ruins. I mean, the material presence of it are, lies in the sort of obscure kind of arcane in the corners, the back corners of travel logs that are often read for other things or in sort of ignored kind of 
texts in the corners of libraries that sort of didn't fit into the narratives that people were looking for to tell uh, uh, certain histories, or um, and you can see them today, you know, in, in places um, in, in, in Burma, uh, in, most particularly in Arakan, where uh, the, the persecution of, of Muslim societies has left this, this land where there was a great deal of interaction between Buddhists and Muslims um, uh, in ruins. Um, I mean, this is, this is an area in which uh, I was I was traveling along the Thanwei River, and according to the, the story goes, you know that there were there were dargahs and 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 payas on Sufi both shrines and, and Buddhist, and Buddhist yes Buddhist yeah the Buddhist temples and Sufi shrines um, on both sides of the river, and now uh, the Muslims are on one side and and the Buddhists are, are, are on the other, right? I mean, so it's. Uh, it's a world that's fallen apart. On that somber note, but after a really fascinating journey through your texts around the Bay of Bengal, thank you so much, Aras Khazani, for talking to us in Akbar's Chamber. My pleasure.